Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? How's the weekend going? Yeah? Yeah, busy for a lot of us, yeah. First thing I want to say um, is thank you to everybody who came out to the work day yesterday. It was a great time. Um, a lot of hard work, a lot of fun, and we got a lot done. So thank you guys all for giving of your Saturday, if you did. And um, yeah, it's much appreciated. Hopefully it encouraged you and blessed you and helped you just feel more a part of kind of owning this building. Um, couple of announcements, just a couple here this morning. Um, couple of things that we've been kind of emphasizing over and over. But next Sunday, it's here. We're doing one service, 9 o'clock, everybody together under the same roof. I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a great time. One of the benefits of it is that um, the beauty of God's people is displayed in unity and diversity. And so when we are all gathered together, we get to see the riches of that unity in diversity in just a more powerful way. And so if you come next Sunday, look for that. Look for the unity that we have, even as we all look different in different ages and stages of life. Um, and that's the glory of God when we see that on display. So come to that 9 a.m. here. Um, be ready to maybe park on the street, to sit next to somebody that you don't know, to kind of cram in a little bit. We shouldn't be too packed, but it'll definitely feel fuller than a normal Sunday. Second is May 13th, Friday, May 13th at 7.30. We're doing a prayer and worship night here um, in the building. And it's just a sweet time where we pray and worship. And so it's just a supplement. It's a way of kind of um, just encouraging us to implement prayer and worship into everything that we do. And so it's, a, it's kind of like a bonus where we get to come together as God's people, pray to him and worship him together. So please join us for that as well. And then finally, if you're new or want to get further connected to the church, please swing by the Connect Desk and talk to the hospitality team. They have like a little form that you can fill out that will get you all the information and connected to the right people to help you get connected to the life of our church. Um, all right, so we are diving into a new sermon series, and it's one that honestly I have mixed feelings about because it is a very unique book in the Bible. Um, We're starting a series going through Esther, as you could tell, um, and Esther is a unique book because if you read through it, it reads more like a um, grim fairy tale than it does something that's supposed to be in the Bible. Like, there's no mention of God. There's no praying. There's no worship. There's like a vague allusion to fasting, but not really anything that accompanies it. And so the best that we can do is kind of just like understand it as a story. But it's a story that is very intentionally put together. And here's, here's how we usually like stories. We usually like stories that are very kind of neat and clean, and clean. We like to know who the good guy is and the bad guy is. We like to know how it resolves. We want a happy ending, or if we want to see a sad ending, we want to see a sad ending, right? And Esther gives you none of that. It's just like totally ambiguous. You don't know who the hero of the story is really supposed to be. There's kind of a couple of options. But then you're, as you think about it, you're like, ooh, <laughs> I don't want that hero. Um, and how it resolves is it resolves 
in this Jewish festival that they still celebrate today of Purim. And Purim is named after the um, activity of casting lots, which is essentially like our equivalent of like casting dice, like leaving it up to chance, um, because that features in the story. And so it's interesting that they named the holiday after this activity of casting lots, of leaving it up to chance, and then they celebrate it because everything was at stake for the Jewish people in this story. Their very survival was at stake. And the, um, the best they could do is like, yeah, the, the lots saved us. And so they celebrate that still. And so it's, it's just an interesting, interesting book, interesting holiday that is kind of flows out of this in, mem- in commemoration of all the events of this book. And so here's my, um, I'm going to challenge you because you will be challenged in this. I've been challenged. You will be challenged to understand this and to not think with modern eyes back into an ancient time. And what some of the conclusions that you make about who Esther is and some of what she does, the decisions she makes, same with Mordecai, the other figure, um, the other Jewish figure in the story, the conclusions that you will initially want to make will probably say more about you than they will about the story. And so you have to kind of be aware of those gut instincts that you have. I think some of us are going to have gut instincts that want to make Esther an example and say, oh, yes, Esther was courageous in a difficult situation, and we should hold her up as a hero, and we should follow her example to moralize the story. To say, like, yeah, see, God honors people who are courageous, and he takes that courage and he uses it. And there's an element of truth in that, but that's not actually the purpose of the story. That's a departure. And so if your initial um, instinct is to kind of like make Esther a hero, question that. There's another reason why you might want to make Esther a hero too. Especially in our culture, in our area, she's a woman. And so we are wanting to kind of celebrate women's empowerment. And that's not a bad thing, but just know this. That is not the purpose of the original author, is to lift Esther up as an example of women's empowerment or a women's revolution against patriarchy. So know that your initial response to some of the characters and the situations, they're going to say a lot about you. And so what we need to do, our challenge as modern readers of an ancient text, is to recognize and to um, just affirm that we carry baggage into it and then to let it down, to lay it down, to let it go. And to try as much as we can to embrace the original intent of the author. And so we're gonna do, to kind of help us do that, we're gonna have to do a little bit of teaching. So there's gonna be a section today where it's just information transfer. Um, And it's interesting information, I think. But we'll get into the text in a bit and kind of enter into the story but there's key information first. So I'm gonna do that, and then to kind of break and mark the transition, I'm gonna pray. So first let's go to um, just some of the introductory material that we need to have in order to understand this book. So we're gonna talk about first the storyline of Esther. I'm conflicted about this too. Um, Me and Elizabeth, my wife, are very different when we watch movies. I like to try and figure out the movie as it unfolds. And Elizabeth is on her phone on IMDb, like, looking at what happens. 
when she, when she reads a book, she flips to the end first because she wants to know what happens. And, um, oh, man, I don't understand it. But <laughs> I do understand it because I'm going to do that for us today. I want you guys to have kind of an understanding of the scope of the whole story so that we can understand just this one part that we're going to look at today. And so here is basically the storyline of Esther. This takes place in, as the Jews are in exile. So all of the Jews have been exiled. They're, they've been under Babylonian captivity. So Babylon and the Assyrians came in and conquered them and dispersed them, sent them away from their homes, some of them, not all of them. But a vast majority of them had to go out into the empire, into the surrounding area. And a lot of that was going east, right? So even think about back to the garden where exile took place from the garden east. And so there's kind of an undertone of, oh, this isn't good. Like we're getting farther away from where God is, from God's promised land. And so they're in exile. And Esther is um, an adolescent, what we would consider an adolescent woman. She's probably a teenager. And she's been adopted by her cousin, who's a little bit older. And her cousin has kind of raised her. Her cousin's name is Mordecai. And there's turmoil in the Persian court, in the Persian royal system, because the king is a bit of a mess. And his marriage issues kind of come to, they boil over, and they end up with him saying, she's no longer the queen. And so he makes this like very flippant, in a drunken stupor, kind of like, no, she's not the queen anymore. And in something out of Cinderella, but a very dark version, he says, we're going to do this. We're going to bring all of the women who aren't married, and they're all going to come, and I'm going to pick the one that I want the most. And when I say want, think of the most base version of that verb. This is a very lustful activity. It's X-rated in so many ways. So it's a show that is put on for the king, and then he gets to try out each of the women that he fancies. And so Esther gets put into this. And we don't really know too much about why or how that happened, if she wanted, if she like entered into it voluntarily, or if she was kind of made to do it. It's ambiguous. But she enters into it, and this happens over a period of about four years from the time where the king says, no, you're not my queen, I need a new queen. And so in that four-year interim, we don't get many details. But what happens is Esther gets elevated, and the king finds favor in her. And so the king makes Esther the queen, and he doesn't know that she's Jewish. So that's kind of the first development of the story. The tension of the story is introduced when we meet the antagonist, Haman. So Haman's the bad guy. That much is clear. There's a lot of bad guys, but Haman is definitely one of them. So Haman is kind of this very insecure Persian official, and he's kind of second in command, but he's not super secure because the king's not secure. And so when the king's not secure, the second in command is not going to be secure either. And so he kind of walks around and makes everybody bow to him, and Mordecai doesn't want to bow. 
We don't know why Mordecai doesn't want to bow, but he doesn't. And so Haman is like, I'm going to kill you and all your family and all your descendants and all your people. And so he essentially convinces the king to make a royal decree saying, all the Jews are fair game. It's hunting season. And so in all the lands of my kingdom, which is basically all of the known world except for Greece, says the Jews are going to be destroyed. So the Jewish people are this close to being completely wiped out. This is the covenant people of God in Jerusalem, all over, completely wiped out. And so the rest of the story is kind of Esther trying to figure out leverage points with the king, trying to get the king into a situation where he has to make a decision. And this is like, you know, this is like holding a tiger by the tail because he's not rational. He's impulsive. He's drunk half the time. And he's insecure. And he is the most powerful man that maybe has ever existed. He wields incredible power. And I mean, just as flippant as he said, yeah, go ahead and kill all the Jews, millions of people. Sure, go ahead, do it. That can also come back on her. And she knows this because that's what happened to Queen Vashti. And so there's a tension that Esther is into from the very beginning of like, I'm trying to make it so that my people don't get destroyed. And I'm also trying to listen to Mordecai, who's kind of like an advisor to her along the way. And yet I'm also trying not to die. And so she's in this tension. So what happens throughout the story is that Esther is very successful. And it seems almost like too lucky to just be chance, right? It's like the moment in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf says, chance of chance, you call it, right? Like, there are things that are just like, hmm, there's some kind of force that is governing all of these decisions that are impossible, and then events just happen to fall perfectly in line. The stars align every time to make it so that Haman actually ends up being executed on the very device that he constructed to execute Malachi. And so, or Mordecai, not Malachi, Mordecai. Yeah, all these names. And so that is kind of like, okay, like it seems like the story's resolved, but that happens like only six chapters in, and there's four more chapters left. And it's because the king is still in power, and there's still this edict that is out to destroy all of the Jews. And so the rest of the story is kind of Esther's attempts, her very perilous journey into convincing the king to allow the Jews to actually defend themselves and to go on the offensive in this Persian kingdom. And so that's how it resolves, is that that happens. The Jews are successful. There's one day of fighting. There's some people die, not many Jews. And then that's it. So it seems like it's resolved, but the readers are left like, hmm, that seems like it wasn't supposed to happen that way. And it's just very unfulfilling. There's like questions that you have, like what next? What, what was the purpose of all of those things that seemed so consequential, and yet when it's ending, you're kind of like, what just happened? Why did that happen? So that's kind of the storyline of, of the book of Esther. 
um, really briefly the historical context of Esther. So I've already kind of alluded to it, is that they are in Susa, which is one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was vast. It was like all of the known world except for Greece. And so it was super powerful. They had just conquered the Assyrians in Babylon, and they were kind of like the new regime in town. And this was, I think, um, a few decades into their reign, but the new king, it was fresh for him. And his desire was like, I'm going to get Greece, Greeks, Greece too. And so he is kind of like raising an army to go and conquer Greece, to fight the Greeks. Um, and so some of what's happening is a show, is kind of like this military parade to raise morale and to then allow the king to finally overthrow that one little holdout of land so that he can become the supreme ruler of the known world. And so there's this kind of militaristic force that's going on, and the Jewish people are all kind of like caught in it. And here's, here's an interesting thing, and this is getting into our last bit of context, that's the biblical context, is that this is very clearly a story of exile. Right? And so the history of Israel was one of, they were brought into the promised land, but were unfaithful. And so the Lord disciplined them. And he said, here's how I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to raise up a nation from the north, Babylon. And they are going to come, and they are going to occupy your lands. And they are going to conquer you and take you out. But it won't be final. So there will be a limit to the time that, they are, that I allow them to do this. And so they're in Babylonian captivity, which was brutal for, for all Jews. And the instrument that God used to deliver them is Persia. <laughs> and so it's just a fascinating piece of biblical history because now you have the Jews living under the reign of the Persians, who were the instruments of their deliverance. So if you remember back to the book of Nehemiah we were in not too long ago, the first Persian king, Cyrus, made a decree saying, all Jews can return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the temple was rebuilt under the king Darius. The king now, Ahasuerus, is Darius's son. And so you see this kind of like, beginnings of redemption happening for the Jewish people. But think about, think about it practically for a minute. Susa is about a thousand miles east of Jerusalem. How easy is it to return? How easy is it for you to just get up, there's no planes, there's no trains, no automobiles. You don't have horses unless you're super wealthy to pick up everything and leave, go a thousand miles in a brutal empire. Not super appealing. And so while some Jews did return, a lot didn't. And so we are seeing Esther and Mordecai as some who remained, who remained where they were, who didn't go back to Jerusalem. And even that decision is ambiguous right? Like God made provision through Cyrus for them to return, and yet they didn't want to. But who do you blame for that? 
And so that's part of the tension that we're going to feel is like in this biblical narrative is like this is generation after generation of disobedience to God that has made this a mess, morally speaking, ethically speaking. It's a big mess. Like what decision do you make here? Really hard to say. And you can totally understand why they didn't want to go back. You can totally understand why Esther does what she does, why Mordecai does what she does. But you're also like, ooh, how does God feel about that? It's ambiguous. It's ambiguous, and that's part of the point. Okay, let me go ahead and pray for our time, and then we'll start just the beginning of this story. Heavenly Father, um, you are with us, and God, we need you. Um, as, we, as we read your word, this is a wonderful book because it reminds us that we are not the heroes of this story. That it is not our efforts, our human planning and conniving that ultimately and finally redeems us, but it's your work, Lord. And so I ask that you would help us, even as you have described us as exiles, that you would help us glean from this story how you would have us live, that you would encourage us that even when um, times seem dark, even when we don't know the right thing to do, even when we are living under a, a rule that doesn't make sense to us, God, that you are with us, that you help us, and that you're at work for us on our behalf. So comfort us with that knowledge and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I've explained it all away now, but let's actually open it up and read the story. And what I'm going to do is just read the first chapter, underline a couple things, explain a couple things, give you some things to think about, and then we'll finish up with chapter two. And if you're looking for Esther, it's right before Job and right after Nehemiah. So that'll give you, it's kind of like the beginning quarter of your, or the end of the first quarter of your Bible. Starting in chapter one. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his, of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, Vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. 
On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the, queen, before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Edmatha, Tarshish, Meaz, the men next to him, or Marsena and Memuken, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memuken said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say, to the, say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and of the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree was made by the king, is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Okay, let's take a break there. The first section, verses 1 through 9, we see the power and the beauty of Persia. This is um, exceptional in Scripture. There's only a couple other places where this much attention to detail is given to a place. And this kind of like profuse language about how beautiful and how glorious a place is is only used when it's describing the tabernacle and the temple. And so you have the tabernacle and the temple described as one thing, and then the Persian courtroom? Like, why? What's the author trying to do? Well, very clearly, he's trying to set before us the setting of this as two kingdoms. You have the kingdom of God, described by the tabernacle, the temple, his royal throne room as one thing, and then you have the kingdom of this earth, represented by Persia. And it's powerful, and it's alluring. The description of that place is appealing, if we're honest. 
like at the beginning of it, when you're reading it, you're like, that sounds like a pretty sweet party. Like that'd be a great place to get married. Like unlimited drinks and this beautiful setting. And he's throwing this huge, massive party. And so he is doing this, the king, to show off the power of Persia, to kind of rally the troops, to try and build kind of like this puffed up ego about the Persian Empire so that he can then go and conquer Greece. And so it's all self-serving. This is King Ahasuerus just kind of feeding his ego. It's like it just drives him nuts that there's one little place that's not his. And so he goes through these great lengths to kind of like rally the troops to go and take it over. But then Queen Vashti throws a wrench into everything. And all of a sudden, the power and the splendor of Persia is exposed. And we see the insecurity of Persia. Think about this. You have kind of a drunk king. And Queen Vashti, we don't, we don't know why she didn't want to come. She just doesn't. And, I mean, I don't blame her. But you might want to make her a hero, or you might want to make her a villain, depending on kind of how you want to read the story. The author does neither. All he says is she doesn't come. But you can see how that one small decision, just her deciding not to come to a party, has this like huge effect because of how insecure the king is. He just like flips out, and he's enraged. And so he gathers kind of like his like, you know, war cabinet together. And he's like, what can I do about this? And I just, I, you know, I picture um, <laughs> kind of those meetings that you just don't want to be at where there's an insecure leader and you know that they're going to make you come up with an idea that you don't want to come up with, but you have to. You don't have a choice. Like, that's why you're there. And so you're just kind of like give him something that you know he'll like. That's kind of what happens here. He gathers these people, and he's like, what can we do about this? And they're all kind of looking at each other like, don't overreact. But you can't say that. So they're like, okay, well, he wants to overreact. Let's overreact. Not only was it against you, but it's against the whole nation. Like, this is going to, word's going to get out to everywhere, thousands of miles away, and all the women are going to rise up. Like, this is fanciful. This isn't actually going to happen. But they dream this kind of crazy scenario up because it feeds into his insecurity. And that's what he wants to hear. And so he's surrounded by yes-men, and they give him something what, that he wants to hear. And so now, all of a sudden, you have this kind of like just way over-the-top royal order. Think about this practically for a minute. So he makes this order that, like, okay, Vashti is no longer queen. But not only that, all women have to do what their husbands say. Okay. So a thousand miles away, you have a woman who doesn't want to, you know, do the dishes or whatever the equivalent is after dinner. And so she doesn't. Like, are Persian officials really going to show up and knock on the door and be like, hey, you didn't do this. Like, you got to punish you. Now, no, this is like unenforceable. It's, com it's completely unrealistic. But it just shows you how insecure and power-crazed this kingdom is. It's dangerous. It is dangerous. Like, the queen got dethroned at the whim of a drunk king, just like that. 
stamp of a finger. An aside really quick that has nothing to do with the story, but we have to talk about it, um, because some teachers of Scripture and some churches have misunderstood what's going on here. And they see it as kind of like, yes, Queen Vashti was wrong, and actually King Ahasuerus is trying to reinstate rightful order to his kingdom by saying, like, men are in charge and women must submit. And I can understand why there's a temptation to do that. But here's the problem. Ephesians 5, which would be a passage that they would go to because it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Ephesians 5 actually roots that submission to the submission of the household to God. That's totally absent in this. And so that's very different power dynamics. When you say carte blanche, women must submit to men, versus what's biblical is that households must submit to God. Two completely different things. And so just know that what he's talking about here is not how a Christian household should look. Because here's how men are called to lead in authority received from Christ in their household. Give your life for your wife. Lay down your life for her. Serve her. Elevate her. Don't make her do whatever you want. But live for her flourishing. And that is the kind of husband that the wife is called to submit to. So it's a completely different power, power dynamic. Okay. Aside over. Just wanted to say that because it needs saying. Okay, so we have a very powerful but very insecure kingdom, and that's the setting. Now let's go to chapter 2 and hear what happens next. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who had attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officials in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put into custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. 
Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was giving whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again, unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther and the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except that Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, and when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Okay, so you see Esther enter into the inner ring of this powerful and dangerous empire. And really, what we should take from this is the vulnerability of God's people living under a foreign power. She is completely vulnerable. Like, the only connection she has to the outside world is her uncle, who's kind of like lurking and wanting to advise her and help her. But she's powerless. She's helpless. And she's, like, just thrown into this destructive system where she's made to go and sleep with the king. It's essentially like a sex contest, and he chooses her. And so there's, there's suffering, and there's just ambiguity and just evil that's all throughout these pages. And that represents the world, the power of this world, the kingdom of this earth. And so here's... As we conclude for just today, we're just kind of getting going in this series. But here's something that you should do as we read this. Read 1 Peter along with it. Because we can learn a lot about the dark side of living in exile from Esther, but there's not much instruction. And so a nice companion is 1 Peter because 1 Peter starts this way. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. First Peter is a book written to the New Testament church who are described as elect exiles. That's our identity 
in this earth is that we are living in a foreign land because we belong to a heavenly kingdom and it's dangerous and it's dark and you won't escape it without being thrust into suffering and you won't escape it without being thrust into positions that are impossible and situations that are impossible. And during those, it's easy to think that God's gone, that he's absent. He's at his most distant. But First Peter and Esther too, but in a very different way, it reminds you that this is all the foreknowledge of God. And that in this, he is sanctifying you. He is sprinkling you with his blood. He's actually very present. And he's bending everything to your redemption and the redemption of this entire world. And so Esther has no idea at this point why she's the queen. She has no idea why her life just got flipped upside down. And she's confused. And this happened, this first few verses, or these first couple chapters happen over like a four-year period too. And so that's also kind of disorienting. But Esther has no idea what's going on. She's just all of a sudden the queen. But God put her there because he was going to be faithful to his people and was going to use Esther and Mordecai to redeem them. But it's only a hint of the perfect redemption that we have in Christ. It's only the hint of the one who actually makes himself vulnerable, the king who places himself as an exile under the authority of the kingdom of this earth. That's what Jesus did when he came to earth. He made himself an exile. He put himself into subjection to the evil powers of this world. And he didn't try to preserve himself. He put everything on the line. And he died to redeem us. And he is the one that Esther points to. And it's that perfect redemption that we long for after we get done reading Esther that Jesus gives us in the most satisfying way. So um, that's the encouragement for you guys, is that this is going to kind of plunge us into a very dark, confusing world. It's going to acknowledge that world. And it's going to point to our need for a better redemption than what's offered in the book of Esther. And we have that. And so 1 Peter's a great companion to kind of help you live into that living hope that we have in Jesus as we do that. Please pray with me. Mm, Heavenly Father, this is, um, yeah, it's such a good reminder that even though we are in this world and living here in the nation's capital of one of the most powerful nations. Um, Sometimes we feel this. We feel comfortable, maybe. And then we feel kind of um, uncomfortable with our comfort because we know that we belong to a heavenly kingdom. And Lord, we also get put into positions in this world where um, we feel completely helpless and powerless, where we feel lost. We don't know what's going on. We don't know why we're suffering. We don't know why our lives get turned upside down. And yet, Lord, you know perfectly. And so, God, I ask that you would help us to um, to trust you as we enter into that tension every day, that you would help us live faithfully, and that we would also know that 
um, that our Redeemer lives and that he is working all things for our salvation. So Lord, we can trust you, we can step out in faith, and we can seek you even when you seem far away because we know that you will never forsake us and that you are with us. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.